This is episode 66 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're continuing with the 2011 Annual Enrichment Conference, Choose to Love or Die. This is session three, Tuesday night with Dave Anderson. His closing prayer got cut short because the tape we were recording on ran out when the session went a little long. Amen. I must say, it uh, stirs my heart uh, to be here. I feel like I'm among like-minded brethren. And uh, just to hear of, of the churches uh, getting together and, and uh, the family metaphor, and uh, it's just exciting to see what God's doing. And I, I kind of say this as an outsider coming in, but God is at work here. He's doing things. It's neat to see the gospel-centeredness, the grace, uh, the ministry focus, the raising up of, of elders, and God is at work. It's neat to be a part of this in a small way. Uh, I've had just a wonderful time. Have you had a wonderful time so far? Boy, praise the Lord for just the leadership bringing this together. I've had some great conversations uh, with many of you. I'd love to meet you. If I haven't met you yet, please, uh, I'd love to hear about your church and just uh, what's going on. This has been just a delight for me. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians 13. The title of this message is The Definition of Love. going to give us kind of a framework of what is Love, what is love? Let me go ahead and read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this section of scripture that's not just poetry, it's instructions for a covenant community. How to live, how to act, how to be, how to treat each other, what to model, what to exemplify, what to foster. Help us, Lord, to be this. To be these kind of people. Oh, Lord, we are utterly dependent upon you. 
We do stand in grace, and it's upon that that we ask, Lord, for more grace to do this and be this out of a response to your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote this passage to, uh, really in response to disruptions that arose in the church in Corinth regarding spiritual gifts. And he, he writes to them in, in he wants to teach them a more excellent way. That's what he's after. The more excellent way is really just repeating what our Lord Jesus has said, as has been said in John 13. Really, you know, the title of this message is a bit forced. Got the definition of love. But really, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's more about descriptions of love. You want a definition of love, just an English definition Love is, kind of making this up here, but considering the good of another person and then doing it. Uh, looking for a biblical definition, we could use 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There's a definition of love. Uh, just do what Jesus did. He laid down his life for us. You, you do that. This is love. But in this section, we, we get some descriptions, some angles on the descriptions and, and characteristics of love. And in the first three verses, he says this, in other words, love is indispensable. Love is indispensable. And I, I'm just going to briefly whiz through this, but he says, without love, evenly heaven, even heavenly language sounds annoying. Paul pictures himself as uh, being the world's greatest tongue speaker, man and of angels, uh, which the Corinthians would have loved. Oh, wow, that's phenomenal. I have not love, I, I'm annoying. I'm annoying. He doesn't just say that his speech would be a clamorous noise, but he himself would be hollow. An annoying sound. Without love, knowing it all helps no one. He, he sort of hypothetically imagines himself uh, possessing the gift of prophecy to such an extent that he knows all mysteries, all knowledge. They would have loved this. Wow, you know, walking Bible answer man. They would have loved that. They don't have love, nothing. That love risk-taking faith is worthless, having the gift of faith to such an extent he could move mountains with his faith. I mean, this person would be sought after. Incredible. Without love, giving all one's money to the poor is unprofitable. Imagines himself having the gift of giving and being generous, you know, uh, causing himself to be impoverished at the expense of his generosity. Certainly that's love. Without love, the ultimate sacrifice of one's life is pointless. Paul envisions himself actually being a martyr. I mean, surely that's love. To give your body in the flames for the cause of Christ, for the gospel. What, a, what an example of love. Paul says, if you do it without love, such giving of the body... It's not an act of love. It says, I am nothing. I gain nothing. George Sweeting 
puts it this way. Gifts minus love equals zero. Gifts minus love equals zero. Don Carson put it this way. According to divine mathematics, five minus one equals zero. Z uh, Jerry Bridges gives the illustration. It's wonderful, something you just don't easily forget. He says, imagine in your mind or on a piece of paper just drawing a bunch of zeros. Just fill up the page with zeros. Add all those zeros up, what do you have? Nothing. But you put a positive number in front of it, and ah, you have something. He says, this is the way it is with our gifts and faith and zeal. There's zeros on a page. Without love, they count for nothing. But put love in front of them, and immediately they have value. And just as the number two gives more value to a row of zeros than the number one does, so more and more love can add exponentially greater value to our gifts. Do you see what Paul's saying? Love is indispensable. This is really what John says in Revelation chapter 2. So that's what he says in the first three verses. Now, verses 4 through 7, he defines love or really gives descriptions of this love. And here's what I want you to think about. As you're reproducing yourselves by making disciples yourself and as churches, what are you reproducing? Is it this First thing he says, and, and I, don't be daunted by the outline. We're going to zip through this, but if you're a note taker, realize not all of you are note takers, but I've got 13 points again. Don't freak out. We'll zip through fast. This is point number two. Point number one is the more excellent way. Point number two, love is patient. Love is patient. You were to ask the Lord Jesus, what does love look like? What does a loving Christian leader look like? The Lord Jesus would say, patient and kind. He or she is patient and kind. God himself being the example par excellence of long suffering. That's what else the, the verb uh, denotes, forbearance, uh, particularly as it relates to injure, injuries suffered, right? Injuries suffered. The Lord God, I'm touched by this at an emotive level. God has suffered long with David Anderson. God the Father has shown forbearance with David Anderson. I'm thankful for that. He's been patient with me. All the wrongs done against him, things I haven't done things I have done. He has been patient with me. I remember very early in ministry, maybe nine years ago, I was in a situation in a church that was horrible. It was horrible. And I remember a few nights literally crying myself to sleep. I'm in my early 20s, I don't know a thing. I don't know what I'm doing. And I've got Alex as my mentor, and I, I call him up. I go to him, and, and I, I just bear my soul. I, what do I do? What am I doing in this situation, first of all? But here I am. Help me. 
And him saying to me, David, first of all, kind of chuckling a little bit, and this is good for you. You need this. But David, you need to practice patience. You suffer long with them. You show forbearance with them. You be patient with them. And I learned, and I'm learning, that patience is really a key ingredient for maintaining unity. Those of you who've been in ministry, I've talked to one brother 40 years. 40 years he's been in full-time pastoral ministry. Patience with people. Winning people who are, who are living in, in sin in errant ways, showing patience with them. It's tough. Uh, protecting yourself from bitterness and anger. Patience. It's love. This is what Paul tells Timothy. Preach the word, Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. Paul was an example of this himself. Wow. Think of the Corinthians in and of themselves. All the problems, the, the fighting, backbiting, criticism. Didn't return evil with evil, express anger in a sinful way. He was patient with them. Number three, love is kind. Love is kind. It's been said, kindness is love in work clothes. W. Graham Scroggy, what a name, has said, you can no more have love without kindness than you can have springtime without flowers. Paul's first two descriptions of love, they're both positive statements, but they're really uh, two different sides of the same coin. Love is patient, love is kind. kind kindness is sort of the uh, activity that love manifests itself in. You think of God, he is kind. Uh, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. It's amazing. You read the Gospels. Uh, Jesus, over and over again, I mean, the Gospels just pour forth the kindness of Jesus. He was kind. If we were to meet Jesus on the street, he would be kind. Patient and kind. You think of uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke. You know, he, he, he touches a man, has leprosy, encounters a deformed woman bent over by disease, demonic spirit, he lays his hands upon her. This is a man of kindness. He touches the eyes of the blind. He, he feeds uh, the multitudes. I think it was B.B. Warfield who did a study on the emotional life of Jesus. And he said, there's one word that could describe Jesus. He's a first-rate scholar. There's one, re one word to describe the emotional life of Jesus. It would be compassion. Here Jesus is. He, he has compassion on people. He stops to bless little kids. Little kids aren't freaked out by him. They love him. They're drawn to him. He's kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Acts 10.38 sums up the work of Jesus with these words. He went about doing good. He went about doing good. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story of Jesus. So let's just get this straight. Love is patient, love is kind, but kindness is an imperative in the Christian life. You know, our work is with people. We, we, don't, 
we don't have a job where we just, we're just in, you know, in a cubicle and we don't interact with, I mean, we work with people. Our work is with people. 2 Timothy 2, 24. Those who lead and teach the Lord's people are to be kind. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. 2 Corinthians 6. As servants of God, Paul writes, we commend ourselves in every way by patience and kindness. Augustine, uh, in his book, Confessions, describes how uh, during his unconverted days, the renowned preacher and bishop uh, Ambrose was on the scene, and he said that he was moved, it, what moved him more by kindness uh, than his famed preaching, he said, he said this, he says, that man of God received me like a father and expressed pleasure at my coming with a kindness most fitting in a bishop. I began to like him at first indeed, not as a teacher of the truth, for I had absolutely no confidence in your church, but as a human being who is kind to me. My brother John Lynch uh, tell the story about a meeting with Bill, and I, I think it, if I heard this correctly, how Bill won him with kindness. Kindness. May we be a people who embody and practice kindness. Again, I just ask you this. Take, it, take an inventory in your own mind. Or what are you producing? What are you reproducing in your, in your churches, in your disciples, as you're making disciples? Is it this? Is it this? Just think of simple things, practical things, a card sent to someone. Uh, we gently hammer our people on this. This is not come to church and exchange pleasantries. What, are, you, are you loving one another? Send a card to a shut-in. Visit someone who's sick. Don't outsource this to the elders. You do this. We're equipping you to do this. Call someone. Pick up the phone. And we say it gently. But pick up the phone. Call people. Call people who are struggling, sick, people who have cancer. And you're, and you're, call them. Introduce yourself. Tell them you're praying for them. Uh, readiness to help and a relieve a burden, a hug, a touch, thoughtful gesture, uh, just an expression in, in, in con of concern. The way of kindness is the more excellent way. So patience and kindness, these are the two positives. Now, number four, love does not envy. Love does not envy. Jealousy. Jealousy destroys churches. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, jealousy, uh, he says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? It's in interesting that uh, James says, James 3.15, that jealousy is demonic. It's a work of the flesh. It's a work of the flesh. Uh, Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Uh, it's the epitome of the self-life, right? It's, it's pure selfishness. Thinking about my concerns, it, it's, it's the enemy of love. It destroys love. Furthermore, really it's an assault on God's governance. 
God, God, if you weren't aloof in your lordship, I would have that. I would be doing that. If you had your act together, God, that would be my house. The 10th commandment, covetousness, is really a form of jealousy. And by the way, this is a common sin among Christians. Could be preaching in the local church, uh, jealousy and comparison of Christian celebrities and leaders, music ministry, choirs. It's a pervasive sin. You think of uh, uh, King David with, or uh, King Saul with David. Initially, Saul loved David. What a guy! But almost immediately, Saul became envious. Got this young, young buck on the scene. He's a musician. <laughs> he's talented. He's popular. And Saul hears this song. David has slain his, or Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is ten thousands. And Saul crumbles. He can't live in a world where someone is greater than him. It bothers him. He's sickened by it. So I just ask you this, because love is not jealous. It doesn't envy. What about you? What about you? Preachers, I know this myself, can, can feel threatened by other gifted preachers. Uh, churches can envy other churches that are uh, growing faster than theirs. Seeing more baptisms. Missionaries can burn with envy toward other missionaries who are more fruitful, get more support financially. Bible study leaders can envy other Bible study leaders. Singers can envy other singers who shine brighter. Uh, elders can envy other elders who, who have more knowledge or are more sought out. Deacons can envy other deacons. We're more effective, more people want to talk to them. So I just ask you to consider this in your community. Uh, consider how you can expose and fight against this. Fight against the sin of jealousy. It, it reeks of the self-life. It's not the more excellent way. Love is not jealous. Rather, it rejoices in others. It hears of baptisms in other churches that are growing faster, that are larger, and it rejoices in that. It rejoices in the promotion of others. Number five, love does not boast. Ah, the braggarts. This is, again, preoccupation with self, craving attention. Uh, Alex tells a story about a missionary evangelist who came to his home uh, along with some others for dinner, and for three hours, this missionary never stopped talking about himself. His ministries, his successes, how hard he worked, how much he traveled, how blessed of God he was. And not once during that three-hour period did he ever ask a question of anybody else. Just a three-hour monologue. Proverbs 27.2, Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. So, so don't be a braggart. That's the self-life. Be, be a question asker. Affirm others. That was this morning, right? Affirm others. Consider others. That's love. Foster that. Develop that. Do that more. Be a question asker. There's a great story of Billy Graham. Uh, there's a missionary who was on a ship with Billy early, early on in, in Billy's career, coming back from Africa, I believe. And this missionary's 
talking to, to Billy, and, and uh, he said he was just struck as, they, as, the, as he asked him all these questions. Billy took a, a genuine interest in his ministry. Tell me about this. How's the work of the Lord going? How can I be praying for you? This minute missionary was so impressed by this. At the end of their voyage, the missionary asked Graham how he could pray for him, and Graham answered, pray that I'll be a humble man. It's interesting. Uh, pride has never been something that's been leveled against Billy Graham in his ministry. He's a humble, humble man. Number six, love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. You know, it, it truly is impossible to be arrogant near the cross of Christ. It, it, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even, how do you be arrogant? How do you boast except in that? I mean, love is not arrogant. Hardly anything is more contrary to the example of Christ's life. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? gifts and ministries that you did not receive from God. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's no room for arrogance. Love is not arrogant. The Corinthian church was an arrogant church. It really was. Arrogant spirit permeated the church at Corinth. It was a cause of many of its problems. They were like the, the Pharisee who says, Oh God, I praise you. Hallelujah. And I'm not like this man. I'm not like these people. Arrogance. Jesus, on the contrary, strictly prohibited his followers from being arrogant or expressing any form of it. The greatest among you shall be your servant, he says. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So love is humble. Love is modest. Foster that. Foster that. Display that. Show that. Showcase that. Humility is the antidote. Romans 12, 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, serve the Lord. he served the Lord with all humility. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. Sproul says, ponder. Trying to foster humility. <laughs> this is so genius. Ponder the enormous scope of our own ignorance. The vast scope of our own weaknesses. And the vast scope of our own insufficiency. And the vast scope of our own sinfulness. Who are we? Like David, who am I? What is my household that you would be mindful of me? Love is not arrogant. I remember it was, I think it was probably 10 years ago. Uh, I, it was actually more than that. I was uh, serving in a camp for a summer down in uh, Santa Cruz, California, Mount Hermon. And I was on staff there. It was one of the best summers of my life. But Luis Palau came to visit, and he was speaking there. And uh, I was... I was talking to his son, Kevin. I believe his son's, Kevin, his son's name is Kevin. And, uh, and I said, is there any way I can meet Luis? Uh, and he said, absolutely. And so it was so touching to me. Luis carved out an hour. We had an hour together. 
And, and here's this great evangelist who I just have so much respect for, and even more now. And he took an hour out, asked me questions, and, and was so down to earth. And he said, hey, we're starting a, a conference this year, Next Generation Alliance of uh, Evangelists. I'd like to pay for you to come. Here I am, this little pipsqueak, you know, string bean. Oh, yeah, that sounds good, Louise. And... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I've actually never told anybody that, but he, he paid for me to come, and, uh, and there was, you know, maybe 30 other evangelists there, and he was training them, and, and I'll never forget what, what someone asked him, and it's, it's stuck with me, and I hope I can communicate it in a way that makes sense, but they asked him, Luis, how do you stay humble? And you speak to tens of thousands of people. And I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he, it, was, it, it had the spirit of this. I said, how, how do I stay humble? I'm nothing. Yeah, so I speak to 10,000 people. Big deal. There's, what, 7 billion people in the world? I'm not even scratching the surface. Who am I? That's just a humble perspective. Who are we? Praise the Lord when we can do ministry, but let's, let's have a big picture of this. Ponder the enormous scope of our own ignorance. Let's ponder that. Another example is C.S. Lewis became internationally known when he converted from atheism to Christianity. Of course, taught at Oxford and Cambridge, very well known. But he was part of a little tiny Anglican church. In fact, a lot of people in the church had really no idea who he was. Here he is associating with them. Just an example of humility. People would write him letters, and, and someone wrote, he treated, from all over the world, people would write him letters, and little children. In fact, there's a book, books on this, I mean, of his letters that he wrote to even kids. And someone said, he treated each correspondent as if he or she were as important as the king or queen of England. Ah, what a great example of humility. Lo love love is, is not, uh, does not boast it's not arrogant. Here's Lewis associating with little kids like, like they're the king or queen of England. That's love. It's an example of love. Number seven, love is not rude. Love is not rude. Scripture tells us that love doesn't behave with ill-mannered impropriety. This, this carries the idea of acting disgracefully, uh, contrary to social norms. You know, so, so young people saying, I don't really care what, what the older folks think about this. A, a young lady saying, I don't really care if people have a problem with my dress and how I look. Older folks, you know, thinking, I don't really care if they're concerned or not concerned about this. Love isn't rude. It, it, rather, to, to put a positive spin on it, it promotes proper decorum, but it considers, it considers others. Number eight. Number eight, love is not preoccupied with self. It doesn't insist on its own way. This gets to the core of, this is the self-life. Paul says it, love is not about the self-life. Think of James and John. Grant to us, <laughs> one at your, grant, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And, and what happened? The request immediately sparked a controversy. Then there's Jesus. If Jesus had sought his own advantage, 
there wouldn't be a gospel. Jesus considers others. Christ, Romans 15, 3, did not please himself. I came not to be served, but to serve. Right? Paul, same thing. Did not seek his own. For though I'm free of all, I've made myself a servant to all. The Corinthians, on the other hand, are absorbed with self. You've got a problem with alcohol? That's your problem. You've got a problem with, with food sacrifice, sacrifice diet? That's your problem. Paul says, no! He's, he's not considering himself. I'll lay those, those rights down. What can foster growth and love in the covenant community? I'm about that. That's love. That's love. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is an example of love. Do what it takes. Consider other people. Be occupied. Love is occupied with others. The Philippians, think of uh, Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is focused on others. It's not focused on self. Number nine. Love is not easily provoked. It's not irritable. This, this actually is a truly fascinating quality of love that Paul points out here. It's not easily provoked to an emotional state of irritability or anger. This is, this is profound and so relevant. Especially for a leader. You have to deal with provoking situations. People come up to you, chew you out. Emotions flare. Sure, you've been in these situations. What do you do? How do you prevent you know, bitterness and resentment? One of the biblical qualifications for an elder is that he's not quick-tempered. There's a story of a seminary professor who uh, was out to lunch with a pastor. And uh, while they were having lunch, the waitress accidentally spilled a whole bunch of water on the pastor's suit. Pastor exploded. What are you doing? Giving, you know, full vent to his opinion, reacting in the flesh. And the seminary professor, after she had left, humiliated, leaned over the table and said, how about we share the love of Christ with her now? You got the point. True story, I know of a church where the pastor actually pulled out a bullwhip. So, oh, this is almost too crazy to believe. A Rolodex, back when they had Rolodexes. He had had enough. <laughs> pulled out a Rolodex with people's names on it and literally kicked them out of the church. Diatrophies, totally a third John story. So-and-so Johnson, you're out of here. True, true story. James 1.19. Let every person be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So rather, it's not, e it's not easily irritated. It's calm and slow to anger. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers, uh, tells a story of Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite missionaries. And Taylor was on the bank of a river in China. And he called out for a river boat he needed to cross the river. And uh, um, as he was standing there waiting, 
uh, about to get on the boat, there was a wealthy Chinese man who just sort of barged right past him and knocked, you know, Taylor down into the water. And the, the man on the boat who saw this wouldn't let this, this Chinese man on the boat. He said, no, he can't do that. Obviously, their culture, they want to honor foreigners. And when the wealthy Chinese man saw what he did, that, you know, because Taylor's dressed in a you know, Chinese garb, uh, you know, he apologizes and, and comes over. And, and again, the, the man on the boat wouldn't let this guy on. And, and Taylor gets on the boat, welcomes him in, and actually shares the gospel with him. Wasn't irritable. Could have been. But he was slow to anger, calm. Number 10. Love doesn't hold grudges or seek revenge. It's not resentful. The word literally says it does not reckon the evil. Doesn't keep a, a record of the evil. Keep a record of wrongs. This is powerful. <laughs> Jay Adams, Christian counselor, author of a number of good books, uh, tells a story of this troubled couple that came to visit him. In fact, that there was a doctor that said to the wife, she had an ulcer, said, you need to go get counseling. Don't know why you're having these problems. And Anyway, during the session with the counselor, she slammed down on Jay Adams' desk <laughs> a one-inch thick, you know, eight by 11, single-spaced, typed on both sides, a 13-year record of wrongs that her husband had done to her. <laughs> Wouldn't want to be married to her. One, two, three, not it. <laughs> grudges. Grudges doesn't keep a record of wrong. You all, if you've been alive for any amount of time, people have done things to you that have been offensive, evil, hurt, hurtful, damaging, scarring. Rather, love forgives. I want to give you a quote. I'm a quote guy. I'm addicted to quotes. This is probably the best quote I've ever heard in my life. And I say that because it's touched me so deeply. Honestly, it's been a life changer for me. And I want to give this to those of you, you're in church work. I'm thinking particularly of church splits, uh, difficult situations, people who've left your church, who've said things to you. And you've looked back in, in, in maybe 20, 30 years ago, things that have happened, and you still don't quite understand how to make sense of it. What really happened back then? This quote's for you. Lewis Smeets, he says this, Love does not have to clear up all misunderstandings. In its power, the details of the past become irrelevant. Accounts may go unsettled. Differences remain unsolved. Ledgers stay unbalanced. Conflict between people's memories of how things happened are not cleared up. The past stays muddled. But love prefers to tuck all the loose ends of past rights and wrongs in the bosom of forgiveness and pushes us into a new start. To move toward a reconciled life is one of the hardest things any human being is ever asked to do, but love is the power to do that. Amen? How do you process that? But love takes all those loose ends of past rights and wrongs, and I don't know what that was about. 
into the bosom of forgiveness and pushes us into a new start. That's love. That's love. It's hard to do. Number 11. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Leon Morris says, it takes no joy in evil of any kind. You, know, you, you think of, there's so many examples of this. People who maybe have left your church and you hear of something happens, it's some misfortune that happens to them and inwardly you kind of delight in it. There's a story of an elder who bragged of enjoying a good fight, humiliating his pastor, crushing the pastor's future plans for the church. Story of a deaconess who spoke with triumph to her friends of her successes in driving out four pastors through her phone calls and letter-writing campaigns. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Loving Christians do not delight in sin or in the demise of others. They don't delight in juicy gossips, find satisfaction in hearing about sordid sins of, you know, the demise of Christian leaders they don't like. They don't gloat over scandals and denominations to which they used to belong to. They don't rejoice when they hear of an earthquake hitting a nation that's full of non-believers. No. Rather, number 12, love rejoices with the truth. It sings for joy at the truth. It applauds all virtue and goodness, no matter who it is, believer or unbeliever. It rejoices in holy character, righteous conduct, integrity, growth in Christ. Now, it hears of, of leaders in other churches, churches that are growing, people getting saved, discipled, and it rejoices in that. It rejoices in the truth. You hear of a young, young believer who's growing up in the Lord, it rejoices in that. That's love. That's love. We're not just about our group. We're about the church. Rejoices in the truth. Number 13. Love bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. Let me say it this way. Love is tenacious. It's tenacious. There's a great story of a criminally-minded young man who constantly got in trouble with the law, drugs, stealing, arrested, jailed numerous times until eventually was sent to prison for really much of his remaining life. After a short time in prison, his friends forgot about him. His family, really, by and large, forgot about him. Outside the walls of his prison cell, he was a forgotten man, except for one person his mother. Each week, his mother would board a bus and travel several hours to visit her son in prison. After spending a few hours of visitation, she'd board the bus, return home, almost daily, wrote letters to him, sent books, other personal items that were allowed by the prison officials. But neither distance or prison walls or money or time could stop her from loving and visiting her son. Her love was tenacious. I want you to think of your neighbors who've resisted the gospel for so long, your family members who've been unbelievers your entire life and ministry. Love is tenacious. You know why? 
Because God is love, and God's love is tenacious. He has loved you supremely. You are beloved. He has been patient with you. He suffered long with you. God the Father has been kind to you. He hasn't kept a record of wrongs. Your prayer list, your Bible reading, your fasting. You are under grace and you're loved. Now go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, such is the love that you have for us, and that's really what tomorrow night's about, the motivation for this. Lord, I, I truly pray, it's only by your spirit that this can possibly happen, but that you would transform lives, help us to do this.